Welcome to The Buzz with ACT-IAC, your source for the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Join us each week to hear insights from government and industry experts, stay informed on the challenges facing the public sector, and gain access to valuable reports and thought leadership. Enjoy. This week on The Buzz, we present an interview with Vint Cerf from ACT-IAC's 2019 Imagination ELC Conference. Vint sat down with that year's conference industry chair, Teresa Carlson, to share some of his insights into the field of IT. Vint Cerf is called one of the fathers of the Internet, along with his colleague Robert Kahn. The two were awarded the U.S. National Medal of Technology in 1997. In 2004, the duo received the ACM Alan M. Turing Award, which is often called the Nobel Prize for Computer Science, and in 2005, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Vint began his career at DARPA and helped lead the development of the Internet and Internet-related data, packet, and security technologies. Since 2005, he's been at Google as Vice President and Chief Internet Evangelist, where he's been responsible for identifying new technologies to support the development of advanced Internet-based products and services, and as an active public face for Google in the Internet world. So without further ado, Vint Cerf. So welcome, Father of the Internet. Well, I'm just one of them, remember. Okay. There's, okay. More than, there's more than uh, one. Yeah, okay. So, but hey, there's also mothers of the Internet. A lot of people ask that question. They say, who's the mother of the Internet? There are actually quite a number of women who played a key role in developing the system way, way back in the late 60s and early 70s. So just FYI, who, that's very Yes, important. thank you. Who are those women? Who, can you name a couple? Sure. Uh, the first gateway, which you would call a router today, was written by Virginia Strauss-Azar, who was at um, Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, the company that made the ARPANET IMPS, the interface message processors. Those were the packet switches of the uh, ARPANET, the predecessor to the Internet. Another gal is Radia Perlman. Uh, Radia was, uh, you might know her because of her work on routing uh, and uh, redundancy and reliability. She was the one that developed uh, spanning tree algorithms for local area networks. Mm. I mean, after they got big, you started hooking these various local area nets together and you would get routing loops and other kinds of things. So Radia figured out how to do fast spanning tree calculations in order to make sure the packets didn't get stuck in a loop. But she also did some really interesting work solving a problem that I cared a great deal about. Uh, <clears throat> what I worried about uh, with the internet was the possibility that some of the networks that made up the internet might be partitioned. And the internet routing system couldn't detect that. And so if there were hosts on either side of a partition and one was trying to talk to the other, you couldn't get through there because there was no routing path because the network uh, the subnet had partitioned, so she figured out a way to dynamically renumber the systems in order to glue everything back together. We actually tested that by artificially breaking up the ARPANET into pieces, and then we put packet radios on the ground and in strategic air command aircraft, and we oh, glued wow. the system back together using packet radios. That was pretty exciting. That's amazing, and I really do appreciate you bringing that up because women are playing a big, huge role in technology and the development. We have some amazing developers and engineers as women at AWS, and I, um, I just read a statistic the other day, the other day that says now at MIT in computer science, 53% are women. That's good. So to it's hear. like amazing. So just if you don't mind, just to name one other person, uh, Deborah Estrin, uh, who is one of three women 
who are the, uh, the daughters of my thesis advisor and his wife, both of whom had their PhDs. Deborah uh, is a PhD who just got into the National Academy of Medicine after having been inducted into the National Academy of Engineering a few years back. Wow. So there's, she's in both academies. Yes, we need that. Her older sister, Margot, is, a P, is a, uh, an MD in Walnut Creek. And her other older sister is Judy Estrin, who is a serial entrepreneur out on the West Coast, started six different companies, became the CTO of Cisco Systems, and who was my student at Stanford University. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So, you know, wow. Well, and in fact, before I jump in, we were just ch chatting about the fact he and I had written a common recommendation for an amazing young girl from TJ that got into Harvard, Kavia, which we she came and did an internship. So it's fun to see amazing women doing amazing things. Well, Thank you're you for sitting right that. here as Thank another you example. with you, which is good. And we are so excited to have you here this year. It's a real honor for us. Um, I've got a few questions for you. Okay. So, as you know, 2019 marks the 40th anniversary for our event here. We said we feel much younger some days than much older others. But uh, when we were planning the, the conference, we, we were adamant that we wanted to focus on kind of looking forward. But I'm going to break the rule for a minute and kind of ask you briefly about uh, your reflection back in 1979 because I know that was a really important year and kind of when you were working, what were some of the challenges you grapple with then and do you see kind of any correlation from there till now, some similar things? So like every graduate student, you get a question and you work with it so that you can answer it. So I'm going to work with this question just okay. a little bit. Okay. We are about to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first exchange between two computers on the predecessor to the internet, the ARPANET, next week. Oh, wow. It was uh, October 29th. So October 29, 1969, 50 years ago, we made the first interconnection between UCLA and SRI International up in Menlo Park. And so we're celebrating that 50th anniversary, but now let's skip forward to uh, 1979. Mm -hmm. I was in Washington, D.C. I was running the internet program for the Defense Department at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. 1979 was after we had frozen the TCP IP protocols, the IP version 4 uh, and TCP. Um, and I was pushing like crazy to get it implemented on every operating system I could get my hands on in the hope that we could get this thing actually built and tested because we'd spent from 1973 to 1979 um, iterating on the design of the protocols, implementing them, finding out what didn't work, going back, changing them, and then eventually when we get everything you know, more or less stable, we froze the protocols and then started implementing on all kinds of operating systems. Because 40 years ago, there were lots of different operating systems. Every company in, in, the, in, uh, in the business, uh, computing business, had their own operating system. So we pushed very hard to do all those implementations, and then at the beginning of 1982, John Postel, who was responsible for um, the domain name system uh, to come, which hadn't been invented yet, but he was also responsible for all of the address allocation uh, for the internet protocols, announced that we would switch from the ARPANET protocols to TCP IP mm -hmm. on January 1, 1983. Wow. So from the 1979 perspective, we're looking towards that milestone. 
And I'm doing whatever I can as a program manager to try to convince the, the private sector to implement these protocols at IBM, Hewlett Packard, and Digital Equipment Corporation. And of course, the um, corporate commercial parts of the companies didn't want to have anything to do with this. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> why would you want to use a non-proprietary protocol that would allow one of your customers to connect a non-brand machine, you know, like IBM didn't want to have Digital Equipment Corporation machines floating around polluting the SNA environment, uh, and DECnet had the yeah. same view, and HP had. So I went to the laboratories, research laboratories of IBM and Digital Equipment Corporation and HP, and I said, would you guys like to try working on this little internet idea? And of course, the engineers are saying, wow, that's cool. So they went off and they built TCP IP for their systems without the rest of the corporation knowing anything about it. And then when the salespeople showed up and the customers said, oh, well, thank you very much. Nice to know you have this proprietary networking protocol. But what about this TCP IP thing? And of course, the sales guy says, what's that? And the engineer that they brought along with them says, oh, we have that in the lab. <laughs> And eventually, people recognized that having an open architecture and an open set of protocols that allowed all these different brands to interact and multiple networks to interact was actually a good thing. Yeah. So yeah. that was what I was focused on 40 years ago. And that's kind of come back around, right? I mean, think about now what's happening. People want to share what they're doing, yep. open design, open architecture. I bet that people were not thinking about security that much back then, as well, much as they are now because of the changes. I'm sure, I mean, in government security has always been a thing, right? right? But here it's now we're in a little different time. This is the part where I get beat up because the system isn't secure enough. First of all, by 1975, before I even got from Stanford back to uh, ARPA, I was working with NSA on a secure version of the system. The problem is that the equipment that I had to use at the time was uh, classified right. cryptography. <laughs> so I couldn't share what the design details were yeah. with the other graduate students and, and uh, participants in the internet program who were not cleared. So I was schizoid for a while because yeah. I knew how to do this. Eventually, of course, RSA came along, public key cryptography, yeah. came, cryptography came along. Around 1976, the first paper comes out yeah. uh, with, with Diffie and Marty Hellman. RSA comes out a couple of years later, uh, and we retrofit quite a bit of that technology into the growing ARPANET. There's still, I mean, internet. There's still a huge amount of work to be done, though. Yeah. It's not just technical. It's also getting people comfortable with using efficient and secure mechanisms like two-factor authentication yeah. in, and uh, use applying cryptography wherever we can, both for confidentiality yeah. and also digital signatures for uh, integrity. So we have a lot of work to do to get this into the system where everyone is comfortable using it in ma as a matter of course. Agree. We, you know, it's, you still see basic things that can be done that aren't always done. So let's talk about ARPANET for a minute. The creation of ARPANET was a really perfect example, I think, of how government and industry really can successfully do something together to create a very disruptive technology. Um, and at this point, you know, would you say there's other things that are out there that we could be doing, should be doing? Is there a model we should think about from there? Absolutely. So uh, let me take the two things. The ARPANET was an experiment in a homogeneous network. The packet switches were all the same. 
connecting heterogeneous machines with their different operating systems, uh, word sizes, uh, character encoding, and everything. It was a very diverse jungle of, of computing equipment. So demonstrating the uh, inter interoperability of heterogeneous machines was very important. Bob Kahn and I started uh, from there and said, well, what about different kinds of networks, mobile radio, mm -hmm. satellite, uh, wireline systems, eventually uh, you know, optical fiber, uh, and things like that. How do we get these different kinds of packet switch nets to interact with each other? That was the internet design. So let's fast forward now. Here it is, it's 2019. We see significant cloud activity at AWS, at Google, at Microsoft, at IBM and other places, but they are largely uh, isolated from each other. And the customers are starting to realize that there is some value in being able to move things back and forth between clouds. So instead of internet, we have an interesting intercloud possibility. Yes. Uh, one of the things that's helping with that, of course, is the notion of containers. Uh, at Google, it's Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. There are other variations on that. Um, Docker, for example. Uh, and so that's one thing where you can take a chunk of code and it will run in more than one cloud. Mm -hmm. And then the idea of being able to move data back and forth in some convenient way. It's, it says intercloud might be part of our, our future. And I can imagine a customer saying, well, I know that if I go to this cloud, I get certain uh, capabilities that might be unique. It might be maybe it's Google's quantum computing or it's TensorFlow stuff. And I don't, I'm not conversant enough with AWS well, special features. Well, I can help features, you out with that. Yeah, if you, you need I, me to talk about yeah, that, yeah, no yeah. teasing. <laughs> so, so the idea here is to give freedom and flexibility to the consumers of these platforms, the ability to move things around uh, conveniently and at need. It also uh, allows them to deal with you know, outages and other kinds of things. The one thing I will say that we don't, I don't know that we know how to do this, but if you have access control, need access control for the data that you are uh, hosting on any one of the clouds, trying to move from one cloud to another and still achieving the access control you need is, as far as I can tell, a somewhat unsolved challenge yeah. because you have to have accounts and authentication and all kinds of other stuff. But I think that's solvable just as the internet problem was solvable. Yeah, totally. And customers want access to their data and they want to be able to use it how they need to use it. And that's yep. the reality. Well, but they also don't want somebody else to use it. Exactly. Who doesn't have the authority to. That's important. Uh, hence our security conversation, right? Which right. is so important. Um, and so one of the things, last night we had the CIO from the city of Philadelphia here and he kind of showed us what they've been working on here in Philadelphia was trying to merge 300 data sets to pull some APIs together to have a full view map of the city and everything going on. Very interesting city, like every city with their own uh, complexities and things that they need to solve. But they, the key is they want to get more information out to those citizens. So you understand that, Vint. You understand the customer and the citizen experience. Over the years, are there tools that you've personally used or seen used that you think actually really does help with that experience to make sure that you're working fast to give the citizen or customer experience everything it needs to be? Well, I would be misrepresenting things if I said that my fingers had gotten deeply dirty with some of these applications. Um, but I will say that I've watched other cities, uh, Singapore in particular, is a city-state, 
uh, become extremely interested in understanding how the city works by measuring what's going on. But the part that's the most interesting is having a model of how the city is supposed to work based on the metrics yes. that they have. And so they can observe what's going on uh, and measure what's going on and compare that with the model that's mm -hmm. predicting what should, should happen. Let me give you an example uh, from uh, our cloud at Google, just because I know that one better than I do the others. Uh, it's a big system like the others are, and there's always something broken. I mean, you can't build a system on this scale without something being broken. And of course, we know when we've sent an error message to somebody because our code sent it. And so we can say, well, I just sent an error message to so-and-so. So we track a lot of what's going on at different layers in this architecture to sense when things are not working right and when they get past a certain level of uh, failure rate, you know, all the alarm bells go off and people run around trying to figure out what happened. Like, oh, we just released a piece of software that didn't right. do what we thought it was supposed mm -hmm. to do, so we have to find a way to back out of that. The idea of instrumenting and measuring levels of, uh, of behavior and comparing that to the predicted model is a really powerful tool. And the cities, I think, have an opportunity to build models of how the city is supposed to work. So Singapore is busily doing that. It sounds like Philadelphia might be doing the same thing. Others could do that as well. And yes. it, gets all, it gets me all excited because if you think about the Internet of Things and the possibility of pulling state information from all of them in order to understand what's going on, and then to try simulations where you know all the power goes out in this part of the city, what should we do? Yes. You know, what's the right way to reroute traffic? How do I deal with the pumps that are not working? All those scenarios have the possibility of being exercised in simulation so that you can figure out ahead of time what the right responses are for some of the problems that could arise, either a natural disaster or maybe a mistake somebody yeah. made. I so agree with you. I think the simulation technologies is such a great way now for the cities to plan uh, or federal government for all the possibilities that we, not e we may not even know about today. So um, you and I were talking a little bit backstage on education, accessibility, and there's accessibility in many ways, but one of the challenges that we still have is, is truly accessibility of the technology into all these communities. I was just in Africa and Zambia for a couple weeks in August and I was blown away by the number of people and how they were using, everybody had like a phone in their phone stands, but how do you get access even in the re most remote areas? Tell me about your thinking on that and ideas that you may have to help improve. I think we're all thinking about that with like your thoughts. Well, don't you just love these puffball questions? Yeah, Thank no, you, I you appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, okay, so there's uh, accessibility is a really important word because I want to parse it several different ways. Okay, so one of them is how do I get access to this system? How do I get access to the internet and all of its resources? Well, uh, one answer, of course, is undersea fiber networks uh, connecting continents uh, together uh, and terrestrial fiber networks to bring high bandwidth uh, to at least, if not homes, at least to central locations. But the, the next big thing, which may or may not materialize, mm -hmm. is what Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos and others are doing to put satellites up in low and very uh, low Earth orbit. We're talking 14 to 20,000 satellites. And of course, you know, my, in, I, my head kind of blows up when I think, mm -hmm. are they all going to bump into each other? And what if they're in polar orbit? Do they all collide right there in the North Pole and they all fall down? So obviously, there's a lot of clever. Uh, 
dynamics that have to be dealt with. On the presumption, though, that they're successful in getting these things somewhere between 700 kilometers and 1,100 kilometers orbit, that's a very short distance. So the delays will be de minimis compared to a synchronous satellite, which is 22,400 miles away. It's about a quarter of a second up and down. Uh, the low-Earth orbit satellites are going to be 50 milliseconds or less. So it feels more like a continental delay at, at most. So that's very exciting. It might, it might turn out that it'll be impossible to avoid access to the yeah. internet if they're successful. Now, there's an issue about uh, sustainability and cost. Mm -hmm. And if the costs are too high, then it won't be affordable, and then it right. won't solve the problem. Uh, from my point of view, though, it's a really exciting possibility. Right now, the statistics are that about 50% of the world is online. Yeah. And of course, it's sort of spread all over everywhere. It's not like these countries are 100% online and these are zero. Everywhere, there is some lack of access. Here in the United States, it's particularly uh, unfortunate in the rural parts of the country, especially uh, the Native American uh, reservations are very, very isolated. Yes. So I've been spending a lot of my time trying to figure out how to fix that problem yes. uh, to the extent that I can. So you're, you're right. Now, that's, that's one kind of accessibility. Mm -hmm. The other one has to do with usability. How do I use the system? How do I use the applications? What if I'm blind? What if I'm deaf? Well, I'm hearing impaired. I wear two hearing aids. Uh, and so captions are a big deal for me, especially in a noisy environment. Uh, what if I have mobility problems? Those are hard challenges to uh, tackle because if you're a programmer writing a new application, whether it's for a mobile or a tablet or a laptop, uh, you have to learn how to think about what will happen to someone who doesn't have the flexibility and freedom mm -hmm. to see all two dimensions, can't see the blinking cursors, uh, has to experience the application in some serial way as you would with uh, a, a blind assistive technology like JAWS, where you're, you're tapping keys and you're hearing where the system is. So learning how to do that is hard. Most programmers do not have an intuitive feel for that. Mm -hmm. And the people who use those assistive technologies have become really, really good at it. Yes. And if you're a programmer who's never experienced that, the intuition isn't there. So it's a, it's a gigantic, creative, and very important challenge to overcome. I've seen, it's so interesting, our Alexa, our Echo, I've seen so many people using that for all of these amazing accessibility um, applications even from lights to noise, the things that, you know, the impairment that you have, how do you, how do you utilize technology in a way that really gets you what you need? But I think there's all different ways, and we have, we have a lot to do, I think, in both of those areas still, unfortunately, so on we, both levels of accessibility. We have a very cool story to tell. We have a, a deaf Russian um, uh, programmer uh, named uh, uh, Dmitry Konevsky at, at Google, uh, and, and, you know, he's trying to sit in meetings and it can't follow the conversation because you have to look around and lip read and that's too hard. So he took our speech understanding and speech, yeah. speech recognition technology and stuck it in a mobile. And the mobile now transcribes in 70 or more languages. And so he very cleverly just sits there and if he's talking to somebody, he can hold the thing close enough to get good signal to noise ratio and this, he just gets the streaming text. And so next step, of course, is getting me speaking English and uh, Dimitri speaking Russian and having yes. a translate back and forth. Right. These technologies are becoming pretty exciting. The more horsepower we get, 
in the devices that are off at the edge of the net or in our pockets or our purses. And so it's amazing, machine learning and AI is becoming a yeah. big part of our everyday life and so it is. we don't even know it. So now I want to talk to you a minute about leadership and leadership in government. When you were in government, and this happens at big corporations too, but leadership in government I think can be a unique challenge in terms of how do you figure out how to get things done faster? And when it's your time, how did you see, when, when you were in government, uh, were there unique characteristics of leaders that were successful in getting things done faster in government? Yes. Uh, now, you have to remember, I was with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is not like anything you would ever find in most of the rest of government. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's a small organization with a few hundred people. They bring in program managers that have bees in their bonnets. My bee was internet. Um, and they basically say, here's a budget, go make something happen. And please don't do anything illegal. Uh, and so we had huge flexibility. We were able to take the problem that we had and go find the smartest people in the country to try to work on them. And so we had enormous flexibility. Today it's not quite as simple. Uh, you, we do broad area announcements though and we can and frame the problem. George Heilmeyer used to be the director of ARPA some years ago. He eventually became the uh, head of research for Texas Instruments after leaving ARPA. But he had seven, a kind of a catechism, you know, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Why do we care about it in the Defense Department? Uh, what is, what's new about your idea? Why should you be the one to solve that? Why is it timely to do that? And P.S., how much is it going to cost? So this catechism was a tremendous way of getting the people coming in with proposals to crisply explain what they could do, why they should do it, mm -hmm. uh, and that helped us very quickly zero in on uh, tasks that we could do. Now, DARPA did something else uh, some years ago. They had this grand challenge idea, and one of them was self-driving vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine why that would be important for the military. So um, when the first challenge came out, and a bunch of uh, uh, typical universities uh, responded to this, and I don't think anybody's car got more than seven kilometers on the 128 kilometer track <laughs> that they were supposed to go on before they ended up in the ditch. Yeah. The next year, Stanford University won. Sebastian Thrun was pushing that. And the next year after that, Carnegie Mellon's team won. And it was uh, you know, inside a, uh, a simulated uh, uh, town. And so Google hired both teams uh, and then eventually ended up with the Waymo company, which yeah. some of you know. Uh, has been um, driving uh, self-driving cars, running self-driving cars in the San Francisco Bay Area for some years now. I mean, we must be up in the five million miles driven in real live traffic. There's actually a service and operation in Phoenix, I am told, and I'm going to Phoenix tomorrow and I'm going to try to get a ride in one of our Waymo self-driving cars. I'll probably leave my fingerprints in the back seat while I'm there. <laughs> so, so the point here is that DARPA pioneered some of these ideas, uh, new ways of doing business from the government's point of view. Mm -hmm. the government didn't do contests so much before right. that. And now many of the agencies in the government are thinking along those lines. So I, I think that freedom, the freedom to try stuff out is so important. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need in government is to give our very talented people in the government sector some flexibility and freedom to explore new ways of getting stuff done.
I agree. Like the ability to have that experimentation and try without having to fear the failure, because you know any success has many little failures along the way. Amen so I to agree. that. And it is interesting. I'm even seeing governments around the world, they are starting to do more of this experimentation. So. so I think that's positive. And conferences like this help because you can do an exchange of ideas. So you kind of answered this question a little bit a while ago when we talked about what do you think the next big thing is, if there's one big thing? Oh, oh well, know, there, what, there's, what a bunch of, there's a bunch of big things. I mentioned the satellite stuff. is just uh, That's on the kind of low level of internet uh, and network connectivity. Uh, and you mentioned machine learning, which is simultaneously exciting and scary as hell. Mm -hmm. uh, partly because it, it, you know, the training mechanisms are based on large quantities of data. The data could have biases, but worse, it could be bad data, period. And so you might be training a system to make all the wrong decisions, which is a really scary thing. The, the, you mentioned that we don't even know about it. It's hidden from us. That's even more scary because now you have algorithms that are determining what we see and hear, what we experience, and it could very well be that those uh, experiences and the decisions that those algorithms are making are not necessarily in our best interest. So that's, that's something to be mm -hmm. very concerned about. Um, I think the other thing which is super exciting right now is that have you heard the, the terms like computational linguistics and computational astrophysics and so on? Computational X is the big deal now. And systems like AWS and Google and uh, uh, Microsoft and so on provide huge computing capability to people who are interested in trying to use computational methods to do things. Some of the most recent Nobel Prize winners have won their prizes not for wet lab experiments, but for simulations that, you know, in, in, of large-scale yeah. uh, interactions and you know, tiny little molecular things. So computational X is going to be a huge big thing, and it will help us understand more and more about biology and health and all these other things that uh, are filled with data but need a great deal of computation in order to sort things out and understand what the implications are. So true. There's, there's so much. And it is exciting, like you said, and sometimes a little scary. But um, now I have a couple of fun questions. Okay. As we, we end up here, is it true that they, the term surfing the internet is because of your last name? Is that true? No, it's not. I wish it were. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's just one of those delicious coincidences. But uh, here's, here's an example of the backstory. It's um, 1989, and three commercial internet services have just popped up in the United States. One was called UUNet. One was called PSINet, they were based in Virginia, and one was called, going to be called SURFNet in San Diego. What else would you do in San Diego, right? So they had this whole advertising campaign with t-shirts surfing the internet. And then they discovered that some outfit in the Netherlands was already called SURFNet because that was a, a, an acronym for a Dutch uh, research organization that supplied networking to universities in the area. So somebody, uh, this is General uh, Atomics, was, was setting up this surfnet. And so somebody said, oh, well, we can't use SURFnet. Why don't we change the name of our organization to CERF, California Educational Research <laughs> Foundation Network. And then they called me up and they said, mm, is it okay if we call our network surfnet? And my first reaction was, oh, if they screw it up, am I going to be embarrassed? 
Yeah. And then I thought about it more. I said, wait a minute, people name their kids after other people, and if the kids don't come out right, they don't blame the people they name them. <laughs> so I said, sure, go right ahead. So in July of 89, I flew out to San Diego, and uh, Susan Estrada, who was the uh, director at the time, general manager at the time, and I took one of those uh, plastic bottles full of glitter, and we smashed it over a Cisco router, and we launched the surfing. <laughs> That's a very good story. That's well, I was thinking about my first email address the other day. I think it was an AOL one, but I don't remember. I think it was some like THC at OL, but I still have the same live email address I've had for over 24 years, wow, I think. Wow, that's amazing. Do you remember your first email address? Yes, uh, because uh, for me, email started in 1971. <laughs> uh, that was uh, Ray Tomlinson at Volt Baranek and Newman set up the uh, uh, networked email. We all got very excited about that, and my emails were at USC, uh, no, 71, 71. I would have been, where was I? Oh, I was at UCLA, okay. So it was probably vsurf at ucla.edu, except that there was no .edu at the time. So it was just vsurf at UCLA. We didn't get the .edu stuff until 1984 when the domain name system showed up. And I still remember my, um, my MCI mail account, which I set up in 1983, and that was also vSurf. Uh, and I remember the number that was associated with it, 1050002. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. It was, the third, it was the third address in the... Oh, it was the third? Was, there, there was zero, one, and two. That was, of course, that's clever, right? <clears throat> All right, one more last question. So as an Amazon executive, I hear you're a science fiction fan. So yes, I've got to ask, do you like an e-reader or do you like a hard copy book? Or is it combo? What? Actually, I do both. Okay. I have Kindle running on my laptop. Some people will say, why aren't you doing it on your mobile? And the answer is I have to have my laptop with me all the time <laughs> anyway. So I just put the Kindle on there to avoid carrying 75 books under my arm when I travel. But I have a fairly extensive physical library. Yeah. And so what happens is that uh, I will typically buy both the hard copy and the soft copy. Yeah. And I read uh, the soft copy on the road, but when I'm at home, I kind of like having a real book there. Yeah. And it's also easier to put notes in the margins, yeah. which I didn't used to do because when I was a kid, I thought writing in a book was sort of like a crime. Yeah. And now I've become much library. more comfortable <laughs> with jotting down my reactions as yeah. I'm reading the book because it's fun later on to go back and pull yeah. the book out and see what was I thinking. I, no, I agree. Have you ever tried Audible? I have not. Now, remember, I'm hearing impaired, oh, so well, Audible probably doesn't work too well for me. I will send you something. There's something you might be able to use. But Audible, I even have to admit, if I'm just exhausted and I really want to know what's on those pages, I will use Audible. Well, you don't have a protocol problem with a book, right? I mean, it doesn't have a battery. You know, you do have to have some illumination. Yeah. But other than that, they last for quite a long time. Yeah, they really do. Compared to everything else. And for those of you who are uh, worried about digital preservation, <laughs> you should be worried about this. It's sort of, I'm, it's, I'm worried that we have a digital dark age yeah. coming because all this technology which is holding our content may not last forever. It's sort of like five and a quarter inch floppies that are gathering dust in your closet. Try to find a five and inch quarter, five and a quarter inch floppy reader other than in the Smithsonian right yes. now. It's hard. Yeah, it's so true. 
Thank you so much for your time today and spending it with us and all of our attendees here. You're well, amazing. thank you very thank much you for, for having everyone. me here. Thank I appreciate you. it. Take care, everybody. And that's a wrap on The Buzz with Act IAC. Join us next week for more hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on Twitter at ActIAC. More information about today's show can be found in the episode notes. For more insights, visit www.actiac.org. Thanks for listening.